Well, welcome Harvest Decatur to our online service for April 19th, 2020. And welcome as well to anyone else who is listening in or watching our video feed on Facebook or at the church website. The coronavirus situation continues in our country and we are making an effort as a church to accommodate the need for social distancing at this time by providing these online videos. And once again, we are reminded in this time that this world is not our ultimate home and we desperately need Jesus to return and rectify the fallenness of our world. Our passage today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me wherever you are. We've been studying the book of Romans as a church for the last few months, but I would like for us to go a different direction this morning as we explore the concept of God's sovereignty. This seems particularly relevant right now in our cultural moment. The title of our message today is Tragedy and Triumph, God's Plans Are Never Thwarted. Tragedy and Triumph, God's Plans Are Never Thwarted. Today's message is, just so you know, ahead of time, an overwhelming affirmation of God's sovereignty in our world. You can either believe in God's sovereignty and be encouraged by it, or you can reject it and despair. Those are your options. But the truth of the message of God's word is this. Come tragedy or triumph, come hell or high water, in good times and in bad times, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Here's another way to frame this message today. If you oppose God, you lose. If you trust God, if you obey God, you win. Even when you die, you win. Even if you get your head chopped off by a violent, despotic, self-aggrandizing world leader, you win. It's that simple. Even if you die a tragic death, painful death by COVID-19, you win. And here's the thing for us today. What was true 2,000 years ago is true today. If you oppose God and His Son, Jesus Christ, you lose. You lose forever. On the other hand, if you obey God, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you win. Even when you die, you win. Now, King Herod is the foil in Acts chapter 12. He opposes God and he loses. He loses big. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, presents him to you as a test case. Don't do what this guy does. Don't follow in his footsteps. Because even after a few apparent victories, it's clear by the end of this chapter that he loses big. And if you oppose God and reject Christ, the same verdict awaits you. You'll lose big. And it doesn't have to be that way. So let's unpack this. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 12. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes in the book of Acts, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, quick history lesson here. We find ourselves in the post-resurrection era of the early church. This is a few years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And the church is growing like wildfire, and converts to Christianity are numerous. And the church was growing so fast that it started to alarm the powers that be, including this guy, Herod. Now, there were a number of rulers in the Roman Empire that took the name Herod. Three of those rulers are especially significant in the Bible. First of all, there's Herod the Great. 
He was ruling at Jesus's birth. He was that neurotic ruler who got tricked by the Magi after Jesus' birth and subsequently killed the babies in Bethlehem, Matthew 2, verse 1 through 18. Then there was Herod Antipas, who was Herod the Great's son. He's the one who had John the Baptist's head uh, cut off. He's the one that Jesus called that fox in Luke chapter 13. Then there was this guy in Acts 12, who was Herod Agrippa I. He's actually Herod the Great's grandson. He grew up in Rome, and while in Rome, he got himself into a lot of hot water. I won't bore you with the details of that. But suffice it to say, he had a short leash when he was sent to Palestine to rule that region. And one of the things that he had to do while he was in Palestine was keep the Jews happy. That was his primary mission. Keep them happy. Keep them from revolting. And so King Herod, Herod Agrippa, lived a a quasi-Jewish lifestyle and tried to do things to appease Jewish leaders. And the same Jewish leaders that conspired to kill Jesus, by the way, were the ones that he was interacting in the book of Acts. And one of the things that he did was persecute Christians in the church in order to appease the Jews. So that's why we see in verse 1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. If you remember, Jesus was executed during the days of unleavened bread. So James was killed around the anniversary of Jesus' death, possibly in an effort to stifle unrest in Jerusalem at this time, this anniversary. In verse 2, it says that Herod killed James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, This was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, the first to die a martyr's death. In fact, not only was he one of the original 12, he was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were there. When Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, he set aside for himself Peter, James, and John. And so now this famous apostle, this member of Jesus' inner circle, is unceremoniously executed on a whim by King Herod. Why? Why did this happen? Because Herod wanted to please the Jews. That's why. That's the reason. Hey, 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 here's a newsflash for you. Bad things sometimes happen to good people, and faithful followers of Christ suffer. you got to get that. If anyone ever told you that if you, you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. If anybody ever told you that if you follow Christ, your life will be just one big comfy gravy train without any suffering, without any trials, that person lied to you. That person never read the Bible. The truth is that bad things happen to good people all the time on this side of eternity. But here's the good news. God is sovereign over those things, and God will never let that suffering be in vain. Don't ever forget that. Jot this down as a first point from our message today. And actually, let's say this together, can we? Wherever you are right now, say this out loud with me. When tragedy strikes, God is in control, and his plans are never thwarted. Sometimes it helps to verbalize these things and not just listen to me. So let's let's say that again, wherever you are. Say it right now with me. When tragedy strikes, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Let's do that again. Is this fun? Let's, let's, 
Let's say it so loud this time that your neighbors next door to you can hear you when you say it, all right? Here we go. When tragedy strikes, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. When good people die, when despotic rulers seem to get the upper hand on the church, when Christians suffer, God is in control and his plans will never be thwarted. That's a truth that God's word teaches. Can I just say something here this morning? Can I share a hard truth with you? This is something that unfortunately you won't hear in a lot of churches today. And I think it's a shame because when this truth is ignored, it creates a lot of emaciated, unhealthy, immature Christians. And I want to avoid that. So I'm going to tell you straight. Are you ready? You will suffer as a Christian. You will. You will. Just come to terms with that. Some of you will contract cancer someday and die a slow and painful death. Some of you will experience the loss of a child or a loved one that will absolutely break your heart. Some of you will be persecuted at work or in your family because of your faith. Some of you will be ostracized from your family members because you actually believe what the Bible says. And the worst thing that I could tell you as a pastor is this. That'll never happen. God won't allow any suffering to happen to you. That's just not true. You can't teach any book of the New Testament without eventually getting to the topic of suffering. Your sincerity won't exempt you from suffering. Your service to Christ won't exempt you from suffering. Your sacrificial conduct won't exempt you from suffering. Your stature as a Christian leader won't exempt you from suffering. And if you think that somehow because you're suffering, then God's punishing me, maybe. Or I'm, I'm, I'm distant from him in some way. You couldn't be more wrong. Suffering is that thing that God uses to refine us and make us more like him. And you're going to experience that. If James experienced that, if Peter experienced it, you will too. They were better men than us. Why am I telling you this? To prepare you. Because if you don't have a theology a biblical theology that tells you that God is in control and no matter what happens, he's going to work it out for good, you're going to end up in a place of despair. But there's no reason to despair. Because even if we suffer, even if we are executed by a ruthless God-opposing ruler, we win. We win. The moment that James died, he was whisked away into the presence of God forever for an eternity of ecstasy and bliss. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death. That's what awaits us if we trust Christ. This last week I read John Piper's short book on coronavirus and Christ. In fact, several of our elders read it too. And I would encourage you to read it as well. I'm going to pepper today's sermon with snippets from that book that I think are apt for our thinking about God and his sovereignty in our cultural moment. In his book, Piper writes this. He says, the coronavirus pandemic is where I live, where we all live. And if it weren't the coronavirus, it would be the cancer just waiting to recur or the unprovoked preliminary embolism from 2014 that's just waiting to break off and go to my brain and turn me into a mindless man who will never write another sentence or a hundred other unforeseen calamities that could take me and you down at any moment. 
The Baptist missionary Lottie Moon, she said it best. I've heard several missionaries say something like this. She said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. And Piper says, nevertheless, this is a time when the fragile form of this world is felt. The seemingly solid foundations are shaking. The questions we should be asking is, do we have a rock under a feet, our feet? A rock that cannot be shaken, ever. I want to tell you this morning that Peter and John had that rock under their feet. Peter's name means rock, but that's not the rock I'm talking about here. I want to tell you this morning that these men had a rock under their feet that could never be shaken. And the question for you this morning is, do you have that rock? Capital R, rock. Do you have that rock? Now pay attention here because there are some really cool things that are going to happen next in our passage. Notice in verse 4. And when he, Herod, had seized Peter, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, just a couple things to notice here. First of all, notice that Herod put four squads of soldiers in charge of guarding Peter. Why did he do that? Do you know? Probably because Peter had a reputation for breaking out of prison. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was arrested and released with only a flogging. In Acts chapter 5, Peter was arrested for preaching, but an angel of the Lord broke him out of prison, and he, he just went right back to preaching. What a jailbird, right, this guy Peter? And so Herod decides that that's not happening this time, and he puts four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers in charge of guarding him. But notice as well, as Peter is awaiting his sentencing in prison, guarded by 16 soldiers, the church of Jesus Christ starts to pray. Look again at verse 5. And it says that they were praying earnestly. The Greek word here is the, the word ektenos. It's the same word that Luke uses for Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, so what happens? What happens as the church is praying earnestly for Peter? Well, look at verse 6. Now when Peter, now when, sorry, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, in other words, this is just a few hours before Peter was about to die, Herod was going to bring him out for public trial, conviction and execution, just like Jesus. And on that night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, I love this, okay? Peter was about to die in just a few short hours, and, and what's he doing? What's he doing? He's sleeping. He's sawing logs. There's, there's no anxiety here. Yeah, I'll probably die tomorrow. Well, might as well get some shut-eye before I get my head chopped off. John Chrysostom, the 4th century preacher, notes both Peter and Paul's peace while in prison. He writes, It is beautiful that Paul sings hymns in prison, while Peter was asleep. (laughs) John Stott says of both of them, he says both Luke's heroes, Peter and Paul, showed themselves to be equally defiant of death while they're in prison. I love that. What a deep confidence they both had in the sovereignty of God. If I die, I die. So what? Let's get some sleep. And notice, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound up with two chains. So Herod wasn't taking any chances with this guy. 
Two soldiers were in the cell with Peter, bound to him by chains. There's no way this guy is getting out, right? Yeah, those people in the church praying for Peter, they're praying in vain. Herod, Herod has every basis covered. There's no way he's getting out. Yeah, those people praying for the coronavirus to end, they're praying in vain. God doesn't answer prayers like that. God's not answering. God's not listening. You sure about that? Watch this. Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, whap, and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. That word struck is a really strong word in Greek. It's the word patasso. It's the same Greek word that's used to Peter when he cuts off Malchus's ear in Luke 22. The angel was like, whap, wake up, Peter. Wake up, sleepyhead. We got to get out of here. You're, you're going to die, Peter, someday, but, but not today. You're going to live to die another day. Verse 8, and the angel said to him, dress and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 9, and he went out and he followed him. And he, he did not know what was being done by the angel, if it was real or not, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter's like, whoa, psychedelic man, this is awesome. Am I dead already? You know, Peter's had some crazy visions even before this. Remember the, the sheet with all those unclean animals? Maybe this is like that. No, Peter, no, Peter, this is real, buddy. Snap out of it. Okay, look at verse 10. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, when, it, when Peter came to himself, <laughs> when he snaps out of it, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now write this down as a second point from our story. What, what happens with Peter is amazing. God answered the prayer of the church. God rescued Peter who was staring down the barrel of a gun. He was moments from death. And, and I want to present this second point as a complement to the, the first point. Let's say the first point together again, and then we'll go to the second point, okay? First point, when tragedy strikes, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Now the second point, let's say this together. When saints are rescued, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Say it with me again. When saints are rescued, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. In other words, God is going to get done what he wants to get done. We can rest in that. When saints die, we win. Sure, we mourn and we grieve the loss of, of people that, that die. I'm sure James's family members, including his brother John, were, were very sad to see him go. But that doesn't nullify God's victory and James's victory that follows after death. When saints are rescued, hallelujah, we win there too. When saints die, hallelujah. They return home to glory. The only way to lose is to oppose God or to doubt His sovereign plan is being accomplished through life, through death. Some people might say, oh yeah, Pastor Tony, you know, Satan scored a goal with James, but God got it back with Peter. 
God fumbled the ball away with James, but then he tied the score with Peter. That's what's happening here. It's 1-1. Satan scored and then God scored. Is that what's happening? No, let me be clear about this. When tragedy strikes, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. And secondly, when saints are rescued, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Let me put it this way. God is not a bumbler. God never says, oops. He never says, oops. Are we clear on that? Let's just tease this out a little bit further. Let me, let me ask you some questions about Peter and James. Does God love Peter more than he loves James? Is that why he rescued Peter and he didn't rescue James? No. Is Peter somehow necessary to God's plan, whereas James, you know, James is expendable? Is that what's going on here? No, I don't think that's the case. God can use whoever for whatever purpose. You might say, okay, okay, I got it, Pastor Tony. I got it. Peter had more faith than James. And that's why he was rescued and James was assassinated. Is that it? No, of course not. Then what is it? What is it? Why does God allow James to die and yet he rescued Peter? Here's the answer. Are you ready for it? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb and shall return naked. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1 verse 21. Job chapter 1 verse 21. The Lord does what he wants to. And we got to trust that his greater purposes will be accomplished in the end. Speaking of the book of Acts and the death of Stephen, Tommy Nelson said this once. He said, Peter preached the gospel and got 3,000 converts. Stephen preached the gospel and got 3,000 rocks. Which one of them did right before the Lord? Answer, they both did. And by the way, no matter what happens, we win. James gets martyred and sent to heaven. He wins. God wins too. Stephen gets martyred. God wins. Peter gets rescued and spends another 30 years ministering for the Lord. God wins. God wins. You die of coronavirus, you win. You live through this pandemic to die another day, you win. As long as you know Christ. Do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? This puts this perfectly. I actually prefer their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but they're better known by those Babylonian names. Well, if you remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar threatened to throw them into a fiery furnace if they didn't bow down to his golden image. Do you remember what they said to him? It was so courageous. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Whew. If this be so, if you throw us in this fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up even if we die. In James's case, God allowed his life to be taken. In Peter's case, God allowed his life to be spared. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, I would say this. This might sound a little ghoulish to you, but I, I actually think that James in some ways got off easier, easy in this whole situation. Peter would go on to suffer and serve for the Lord another 30 years before his eventual martyrdom. James died early as a young man. Now write this down as point number three. Let's, let's say this out loud together if we can again. When prayers are answered, 
God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Let's say that out loud together again. When prayers are answered, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Look at verse 12. When Peter realized this, in other words, when Peter came to his senses after his grogginess, when he finally realized this wasn't a dream, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. John Mark, if you don't know, is the author of the Gospel of Mark. He and Peter worked alongside each other in future days. John Mark was also the cousin of Barnabas, and he went on a missionary journey with Paul and with Barnabas later in the book of Acts. But he's introduced here as just another disciple. He and his mother, Mary, were both faithful disciples. And they even opened up their home for fellowship and for prayer and for the church to meet. And this must have happened regularly because Peter's first thought here was to go, go to the house, go where the people are gathered. Verse 13, and when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Peter's here. Peter's here. Our prayers have been answered. Wait, wait right here for a second while I go tell everybody else. That is, that's just so hilarious, isn't it? You can't make this stuff up. This is, this is so true to life. So Peter's at the gate, right? And he's waiting. And why do you think the gate was locked? Why couldn't he get in? Well, I mean, they're killing Christians here. And Instead of letting Peter in, maybe maybe Rhoda thought it was all a setup. I don't know. So this servant girl, Rhoda, she goes in and she tells everybody, our prayers have been answered. Peter's here. Peter's here. But what's interesting here is look, look how they respond to that. Look what they say. Verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. Rhoda, Peter's not at the door. It, it makes me wonder, you know, what were they praying? What were they praying? Lord, please help Peter not to suffer too much when he gets put to death. Maybe that's what they were praying. I don't know. It never occurred to them that maybe God's going to break this guy out of prison. It should have crossed their mind because it's happened before. God does exceedingly abundantly above what they even pray for. But Rhoda kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. <laughs> Even if it was an angel, I'd go answer the door. I'd want to see the angel. But Peter, verse 16, continued knocking. Hello? Hello? Remember me? It's Peter. People are trying to kill me out here. Please let me in. And finally, they opened the door. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, the brother of Jesus, and to the other brothers. Then he departed and he went to another place. It's funny, we don't, we don't know where Peter went after this. From this point forward in the book of Acts, he's a subordinate character. He shows up only one more time in Acts chapter 15. But Peter's last hurrah here in the book of Acts is quite amazing. God answers the prayers of the church that are prayed on behalf of Peter. And let me just reiterate that third point for you. When prayers are answered, when God says yes and answers our prayers, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. If God answers our prayers to end this coronavirus, 
Hallelujah. God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. If God doesn't answer our prayers. Hallelujah. God is in control. And his plans are never thwarted. Now one more point. There's one more historical matter that Luke wants to tie up in this passage. And it has to do with the other main character, one of the other main characters in this passage, the infamous Herod. Jot this down as a fourth point. Let's say it together. When enemies are vanquished, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. When enemies are vanquished, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. God is in control when enemies win, too, in this world, and when enemies lose, and they will ultimately lose. And we have a test case of that here with Herod. Let's look together at verse 18. Now when day came, that is the next morning, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Yeah, I'm sure that was the case. Where to go? Where to go? Well, he was chained up to you. I don't know. He was chained up to you. Where to go? And verse 19, and after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered they be put to death. By the way, just as a historical footnote here, it was pretty common for prison guards to be executed for losing their prisoners. I mean, that just didn't happen in that day. And if it did happen, when soldiers lost their prisoners, they had to suffer the penalty of the prisoners. And so, you know, instead of putting Peter to death here, Herod puts these soldiers to death instead. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea, and spent down spent time there. Caesarea, by the way, was on the Mediterranean coast. And I'm sure Herod at this time was like, you know, I've had enough of these Jews and these Christians. I need a vacation from these guys. I just need some time to relax. And so what does he do? He goes to his beach cottage for some downtime. But while he's there, something else happens. And Luke wants you to know about it. Look at verse 20 with me. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that's the king's personal assistant, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. Now, I mean, we just had this whole situation involving Peter and, uh, and James. Why is Luke telling us about this? Why is this recorded in the Bible? Did, did Luke just want to add some stuff here, you know, indiscriminately? No, Luke is setting us up for the dramatic climax of Herod's reign. Because you might have thought to yourself after reading the previous section, you know, Herod killed James and then God rescued Peter. It's one-to-one, tied score. One, one point for the good guys, one point for the bad guys. But, but that's not God's economy of this. That's not God's perspective on this. God's plans will not be thwarted. And this guy, Herod, who we'll see in a second, he loves the praises of people. This guy, Herod, who opposes God's people and God's plan of salvation, he's going to lose. He's going to lose big. And Luke wants you to know about it. And so Luke is setting this up. So here's the situation. There's this friction between Herod and these residents of Tyre and Sidon, these two coastal cities that are dependent on Judea for food, and they need the king's good graces in order to get fed or else they'll starve to death. So these guys in Tyre and Sidon, they come up with, with a brilliant plan. If they don't 
ingratiate themselves with the king, they're going to die. If they don't, you know, resolve this little conflict, they're going to starve. So, here's what they decide. They decide to butter up the king so that they can get fed. Look at verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, <laughs> took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, I, I don't know what Herod preached that day. I could guess. Probably something like this. I'm awesome, and you guys aren't. I'm the king. You guys aren't. I've got the power. You don't. Honor me. Pay homage to me. Adore me as your king. It might have been more subtle than that, but probably that's the essence of his oration. The Jewish historian Josephus records this event. He describes the robe that Herod put on and the ceremony as follows. On the second day of the spectacles, clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway his flatterers raised their voices and from various directions, addressing him as God. What a crock, right? What a, and the Bible tells us in verse 22, the Bible tells us that as the people saw this, they started shouting to him, and the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not a man! Now, I'm sorry, I just got to say, this is a bunch of baloney. It is. It, I don't even think the people believe this. How in the world would they come to this conclusion by how magnificent the robes are that he's wearing? Personally, I question the sincerity of these people. They're not stupid. They don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. In fact, they want to butter up the king so that he'll be gracious to them. And so what do they do? They, they deify him. They flatter him. They sweet-talk him. And for King Herod, this must have been one of the crowning moments of his kingship. He's being worshipped by adoring fans. He's being deified by the subjugated masses. But instead of becoming a crowning moment, it becomes for him his swan song. Verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus elaborates here. He says the king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter, he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head. This must have been some kind of bad omen in Josephus' mind, like an angel of death or something. Now once, Herod felt the stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped, by, gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, exhausted after five straight days by the pain in his abdomen. He departed this life in the 54th year of his life and the seventh of his reign. Piper Talking of Herod, he says, we should be amazed that more of our rulers do not drop dead every day because of their arrogance before God and man, just like Herod. God's restraint 
is a great mercy. You know, this expression, being eaten by worms, it could be metaphorical, I guess, for the death of a tyrant. Or it could be it could be literal. You know, some have suggested death by tapeworms. Agrippa could have had round worms due to lack of medical hygiene. I, I tend to believe that some kind of literal interpretation is meant here. Death by worms. Death by worms is the perfect ending for this person who was constantly self-inflating. This noble, regal, powerful leader comes to this ignoble end as worms eat him from the inside and bring about his death. And notice this. As a contrast, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied, still does, by the way, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. When enemies are vanquished, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. And let me say it this way too. I want to close on this. When the wicked seem to prosper, even in our day, when the wicked seem to prosper, God is in control and his plans are never thwarted. Those who oppose God will lose. Eventually, even if they win in this world for a while, they will lose. And those who trust Christ will win. Even if they die, they win. Count on it. Count on it. Peter preached the gospel and got converts. Stephen preached the gospel and got rocks. James preached the gospel and got his head cut off. Agrippa, Herod Agrippa opposed the gospel and got worms. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is in control. And his plans are never thwarted. If we live through the coronavirus... If we die from the coronavirus or the next global pandemic, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One final quote from that Piper book, Piper book and then I'll, I'll be done. Piper says that the coronavirus is God's thunderclap call for us to repent and realign our lives with the infinite worth of Christ. Disasters are a gracious summons from God to repent and be saved while there's still time. I think that's God's message for the world in this coronavirus outbreak, he says. God is calling the world to repentance while there's still time. Wherever you are this morning, don't waste your cultural moment. Don't miss your wake-up call. People, get ready. Jesus is coming. Repent of your sins and embrace Jesus Christ by faith today. Do that today. Don't miss your chance to do that. God is leading us by these world events, by everything that's transpiring in our world right now. He's leading us to a place of repentance and faith so that whether we live or whether we die, we win. We win. Let's pray together. God, we affirm your sovereignty. You are in control. And God, we submit to that reality. And Lord, I sense that you are moving right now through this virus, through this pandemic. I want it to go away. Lord, take it away. 
But while it's here, Lord, stir the hearts of people to a more God-centered view of their life and their world and their eternity. Lord, there may be somebody right now watching this video, listening, who, Lord, has an incredible fear of death, has no assurance of salvation after this life comes to an end. Lord, they don't have to live like that. God, draw them by your Holy Spirit to faith, to new life, to salvation, to hope for eternity. Thank you for the hope that you provide. Thank you for your sovereignty, your power, even in the midst of this this pandemic that we're all dealing with. God, use it to turn us to Christ, to gain new appreciation for the God that we serve and the God that died on the cross for our sins. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.